and stuff like that i've been making so many different versions and you kind of see you kind of have to test test it out as you go along because depending on the size that you started the image as right it may not fit across the entire screen and i forgot i had did these in a different dimension so you know to get it to cover the screen versus you know some sort of half covering like that you have to get those graphics just right but hey you know <laughs> whatever whatever what's up everybody we are here we're gathered here today um we're gonna go a little bit more deeper into these tall whites the tall whites uh at nellis air force base this is a 
species of alien, this, this man here, Charles Hall, um, has a few books called Millennial Hospitality, a series that he actually wrote, put together. Um, he's released over the years. He is a nuclear physicist. A uh, He was in back in 67, 68, and 69. He was a weather specialist. You know how on many military bases across the world, um, you know, you'll have people there that are designated weather specialists. You know, they report in things and they're very crucial to reporting of meteorological events, that sort of a thing. But Charles Hall actually had top secret orders. Um, he had top secret orders. He knew each day that he was dealing with something that was not human. Uh, his The way he describes these beings, you know, they, they grow eight, nine feet tall. They actually continue growing through their lifetime and it actually can, will kill them eventually to the transparent hair. The hair is so white, it's transparent that they have family units. In other words, mothers, fathers, children. Okay. Um, Charles Hall, I don't know what, he's been around here many years. Um, you don't really typically see him though, doing the whole UFO circuit thing, but you guys check this out and just, you know, sit back, let your mind wander here. It's okay to do that from time to time. They got too close so that I felt uncomfortable, as in the case of the tall white lady at the satellite stand. I would back away and they would stay where they were until I had backed away to where I felt comfortable. So that, so that we could, so that before we began talking, we would first come to a distance where we both felt comfortable. You see, I've always felt that that was, and then if I got too uncomfortable, if I felt like going away, they wouldn't pursue. And I felt that was very important in being able to deal with the tall whites because it allowed the, it allowed both me and the tall white individual, whichever one I was dealing with, to come to a common distance where we were willing to talk to each other. For some, like the, like the teacher or range for Harry, that might be as little as 10 feet. For others, like that tall white general, well, I didn't want him closer than a quarter mile, you know? <laughs> yeah. My bad. I didn't even acknowledge the chat. My bad, y'all. What's up, everybody? Talk to me with Brian. What's up, Witted, baby? Texas Trill all day. Hey, Third Eye. Yes, I did. Um, Gloria, hello. Heaven sent. Hello. Hey, Lavina. All right, y'all. Sorry about that. And and that was a real important, that, that was one important agreement that we agreed on. And if I were to see one today out in the desert or out in, out in um, Indian Springs Valley or, in, or out in the town of Indian Springs or whatever, I would still be living by that agreement. I have a master's degree in nuclear physics and I believe that I, I believe that I figured out how their deep spacecraft worked, at least in general detail. And I copyrighted that in, in, a, in a scientific paper I call Hall Photon Theory. It's included in the appendix of book three, Millennial Hospitality Three, um, The Road Home. 
I believe their, their deep their scout craft and their deep spacecraft had a double hull construction. And for example, in the case of the scout craft, in between those two hulls, they had what appeared to be a thousand miles of fiber optic windings. They built the scout craft using materials supplied them by the U.S. Air Force. The scout craft were clearly built here on this earth. When you went on board, some of many of the parts, like the seats, still had the mold markings of American manufacturers, like Lockheed, Boeing, the, the overhead compartments by Airstream, and so on. And so, therefore, it would it had to be perfectly possible to build a scout craft with its anti-gravity drive using ordinary American parts. The, the scout craft had the, the fiber optics windings came in several sets. And, 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 and the way it worked is it, it worked in a manner philosophically the same as an electromagnet. It's just that they did not, in an electromagnet, you use electrons on copper, going down copper wires and coils. Instead, they, they, instead of electrons, they used some other subatomic particle. I'm not sure which one. It's my understanding that there are three different ones or maybe five different ones, perhaps mesons or bosons or those subatomic particles, and then th 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 that put out anti-gravity. The particle generators looked like batteries where there was one that would create the particles and accelerate them into the fiber optics. And then the fiber optics amplified the anti-gravity field the same way that an electromagnet amplifies the electric field or the magnetic field. Now, I think it's important to note this. Fiber optic cabling, okay, is, is a, a really big, huge step up from CAT5 cabling, which is what you may typically be used to for your cable, modem, internet connections, even your DSL connections. But fiber optic cable, the thing about it inside of it, I don't know if any of you have ever put together like a Cat5 cable before. There's a color scheme that you have to get just right for those data bits to be able to run through the wiring. Okay. But fiber optics cable is made of glass on the inside. To have had a thousand miles of fiber optic cabling in a craft in 1969, fiber optic cabling didn't even exist in the public until like uh, less about a decade or so ago. And even then, I mean, the fastest connections we used to get to data centers was like OC3. That was before fiber, fiber optics came around. So again, it's made out of pure glass. It, it basically allows that connection to go faster than the speed of light. So um, to be able, so what he's basically saying is they're running a an atomic particle through this fiber optic cabling, not data bits that you would use to process a computer, but actual atomic particles which decay. Once they decay, they become radioactive, and that apparently was a concern that they had. But they, you're going to hear him discuss how they protected themselves from it. But 
in order to have this craft do these amazing things to create this gravitational, basically this gravitational field around it. And remember how Bob Lazar explained it. You could literally lift the craft up in the air, walk under it, look up, and you wouldn't even see it. It actually can generate a cloak of invisibility. And there's there you, uh, you may recall Bob Lazar talking about sport mode, normal mode and sport mode, normal mode. And he's going to describe it here a little bit, but there's two, there's two modes. One, just imagine, you know, you're driving in the city. The second one is your more long-term drive. You know, you're going to go out to the country, visit your folks, that sort of a thing. So just wanted to, to explain that piece. And then there was another one that picked up the particles. Uh, of course, they had to be refueled after, you know, the, the, you know the, the, they had to be recharged just the way a battery has to be recharged. The same technology was used on their suits, the ones that allowed them to levitate. And if they were running the suit at full power and they came out from their rest area at 11.30 at night, then by 5.30 in the morning, the suit was almost out of power. So that so that the so so that the batteries they had on their suits would only last six hours or so. The batteries on the deep spacecraft obviously also had a limit to how long you know had to be recharged periodically. Although I'm not sure how long that limit was, but um, it perhaps depended on the craft. Um, the deep spacecraft would arrive and leave on schedule, and the shortest schedule was two and a half months. The longest schedule that I saw was five years. So they had to be able to carry fuel to recharge the batteries for that long, or their technology had to allow the batteries to be recharged for that long. But they did have to be recharged. You did have to periodically stop and, and put in a new power source. The outer set of coils served to streamline the craft for travel within space itself. And when the outer set of coils were powered up, it also protected them from the forces of acceleration and deceleration. As I described in, my, in book two, it was common to see the scout craft, if it were sitting out in the desert some distance, and, and, and perhaps, say, three miles, to, when it was sitting there unpowered, it would just look like a white ellipsoid with windows and, 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 and the way you'd expect, <clears throat> when they powered up the outer set of coils, it would take on a fuzzy appearance. The outer field obviously protected them from radiation in space as well. Then when they lifted up off the desert, with if they had the outer coils energized, they were capable of tremendous performance. Could see that it was common to see the scout craft accelerate from zero to 8,000 miles an hour, travel just a short distance, like seven miles or 10 miles, stop and set down again, and then turn off the coils. Um, the people on board didn't belt themselves in, they just sat in chairs the way we do, because they didn't feel the force of acceleration. If they, they did, did not, not have the coils. That is nuts. That's freaking nuts. The fact that they can actually get in the craft and just sit down in a chair without a seat belt and zip, you know, from zero to 8,000 miles per hour in a split of a second. 
But if you really think about it, if you're creating your own gravitational bubble around you and you're in the very center of that bubble, it, it, you wouldn't feel the, the acceleration. You wouldn't feel anything. It's probably smoother, the smoothest ride in the air that many have experienced. Um, I think another interesting thing, too, that he mentions is how the shortest trip. He would literally see the same people, the same tall white aliens, you know, every so often. Plus, he would even see new tall white aliens that had never even seen human beings before. Apparently, these tall whites were mesmerized by how human beings have the ability to multitask. Apparently, one of the character traits of these tall whites is they concentrate on one thing at a time, literally. They're eating, they're going to concentrate on eating. They're not going to be listening to music and looking at their phone and eating at the same time. They're just going to be eating. They're just going to be concentrating on that one task. It's very interesting. Powered up, however, if they were bringing the scout craft in real close, like if they were going to park it beside the, the um, Range 3 lounge, they would turn off the outer set of coils while they were still some distance away because the field coming off that outer set of coils extended a great distance from the craft. Of course, before they turned off the coils, they would first slow to maybe three or five miles an hour. And then once they turned off the coils, then they drove it like a baby buggy. Okay. Then they landed, then they just came in real slow and landed like at two or three miles an hour. And when they took off, if they hadn't charged up the coils, then they would be traveling just two or three miles an hour. They'd be traveling like a baby buggy. And they, and they wouldn't, but it wasn't until they'd powered up that other set of coils that they would start doing high-speed performance. Powering up the coils took a little while, just like turning on an electromagnet. It, wasn't, it was common for it to take as long as 10 seconds for the coils to power up. Because the particles that are running through the fiber optics are subatomic particles that do decay, the coils would heat up if you overused, if you ran at full power for too long. And the tall whites were always very conscious of the temperature of the coils. And therefore, it was very common to see them when they sat down on the desert on occasion, especially on hot days, to get out and open up the panels on the outside of the deep space, on, on the outside of the scout craft, obviously just letting the coils cool off. It doesn't mean the coils were necessarily too hot, but they were always, they liked the coils running cold, and they were always very conscious of the coil temperature. On that day, that scout craft suffered a meltdown of the fiber optics. Now that, as I remember, was a Wednesday, and they, they worked, worked on, on that craft. From Y'all, fiber optics in 1969, I just am still quite amazed by that. Internet didn't even exist in 1969. We were still on telephone. Back, I mean, if you lived in small towns, you could literally dial somebody's number by just dialing four digits. Only as people expanded and more homes needed phone numbers, did you have to extend out to seven digits, then 10 digits. And it's just going to get bigger and bigger the more area code you need, right? I mean, when I, you know, was younger here in Dallas, even in my early 20s, 214 was our main area code. 
now we got 469-940-214. Like I could go on and on and on. It's that many people, that many phone numbers that have been recycled. But 1969. So if you ever wonder to yourself about the explosion of technology, really since Roswell, the explosion of the internet, the, the way that speed has become so much faster. And, and I think about that because I, you know, my first machine was a freaking Packard Bell, okay? My first computer. And I had a 14.4 baud modem. You know, you were doing good to get 28. And then 56K modems came out, okay? And, and many of us went and replaced our old 14.4 baud modems for the 56K. And that was pretty much the traditional standard. I mean, you couldn't even put a lot of images on a web page because it would take forever and a day to load. Because that was the speed. Y'all remember the dear, near, near, AOL, let's dial up. <laughs> but for fiber optics to have actually even existed already, that's nuts. That's nuts. Wednesday, 24 hours a day till the following Monday morning, just getting enough coils repaired so that they could lift off and take it back to the base. And in order to take it back to the base, they had to bring out two extra scout craft. In the meantime, they brought out several others with mechanics and stuff. And, and they had to nurse it back to base by running two extra scout craft on each side just to get it back to base where they could fiddle with the coils. Recovering from a coil meltdown was obviously a big problem for them. That I never saw any humans working on the coils. The tall whites were very, I never saw any uh, Air Force personnel or anybody out there with them. The tall whites always reserved the option or anything to do with the coils was they always wanted only tall whites on there. As far as I know, I'm the only human that got anywhere close to the coils. I got to within a few hundred feet before their guard blocked my way and made it clear that he didn't want me to go any closer. It might have been because since they're running subatomic particles, maybe he was just concerned about the radioactive fields coming off it, but but he didn't want me up there touching them or anything. You know? I've, I've been on board the scout craft, but not on board the deep space craft. The deep spacecraft, which are the same design and the same technology, but much larger, um, are titanium black, right? The one that came in damaged with meteor with meteor damage. That is the, the, the I got closer to that one than any of the other deep spacecrafts. That one I got within a few hundred feet of, as it came by me in the snowstorm, and and so I did see a great deal about the deep spacecraft. But I never, the only people I ever saw, the only creatures I ever saw in the deep spacecraft were the tall whites themselves. On the scout craft, however, it was common for the, for, to see American U.S. Air Force generals on the scout craft along with their tall white counterparts. That was very common. And I myself was on the scout craft. However, they never came to just take me for a joyride. You know, they, they never came to say, oh, let me show you the sun and the moon and the stars. 
I don't know, maybe they would have if I'd asked them, but they knew they knew that we had rank and that I was an enlisted man, the lowest of the low, you know. If there's a latrine to be cleaned, I'll be the one doing the work. And they were well aware that generals who show up with four stars knew perfect were given the orders and I was pretty much taking them, you know. So it's not like they you know, and and it's not like they ever came purely to entertain me with their scout craft. On occasion when I was on board their scout craft, remember they had several new arrivals who were part of the technology transfer and uh, and one and their motivation for taking me on the board the scout craft on that particular day appeared to be that the new arrivals who were afraid of me had to practice coming up to Charlie and saying hello Charlie and then they'd <laughs> and then once having gotten to within 10 feet of the gorilla then they would back away and stay out there like 20 feet they'd so bravely faced me down in the sagebrush I guess but I guess what they were thinking of what I, what I, I believe what they were thinking of on that day is that they were going to suggest to the American generals additional technology exchange projects. And I think they were using me as the test guinea pig to take me on board the scout craft and show me their living quarter, show me what was on board the scout craft. And then they could test my reaction to what I thought was good and what I thought was, you know, what, what I was impressed with and what I wasn't with. And then I think they were saying, therefore, then when they went and talked to the American generals, they could say, we'll make this better for you and that not so good for you. Or, you know, we'll make this better for you. We can help you here. The scout craft was made completely out of American parts and looked like an RV trailer. When you went on board, there it was ellipsoidal, and the scout craft was white with windows on both sides. And more windows. The the door. When you looked at the front of the, when you were standing looking at the front of the scout craft, the door was on that craft was on the right. Since they were all made here, there was a number of different variations in the design, and the windows on that side extended further back than on the left side. Uh, there were no windows on the back, none on the top, none on the bottom, the and only one door, the one on the right, which opened from the top and. Uh, um, much like a Learjet, or I've some Learjets, when you went on board, there there was a bulkhead about the third a third of the way back. In front of the bulkhead on all the scout craft, the design was the same. There were five seats without seat belts that you just sat in. Those tall whites are not built strong like we are, and so the idea of belting themselves in would damage their bodies. There was two seats for the pilot and the co-pilot, and then three other seats in the front. And they, they weren't very interested in showing me the cockpit area. They said there wasn't much about it that I would understand anyway. On, on the bulkhead, there was a set of panels. Nowadays, we consider it old hat, switches that don't move like you have on microwave ovens. Where, but in the, in the 60s, that was considered pretty avant-garde, even though I realized that the, the first um, move, motionless switch was actually copyrighted in more or less about 1929, but it's still, they weren't in common use. On each switch, there were a set of icons. Now we consider that old hat too, because you get by your car and there's icons. But in the 60s, that was considered pretty avant-garde. 
the icons were pretty ordinary. One controlled the outside lights, and it looked like the sun. One controlled the inside lights, and so, and so, in terms of the icons, there wasn't, um, or the hieroglyphs on the switches, they weren't very different than, say, hieroglyphs on the Egyptian pyramids or the icons that you see on a modern-day automobile. The, behind the bulkhead, there were three different. There were at least three or four different designs, based just depending on which model of the Scotcraft you were looking at. In the RV model, the one that I on that day that I was on, what was behind the bulkhead was an ordinary RV. When you went in there and you were looking towards the back, on the right there was a microwave oven, only where the aliens had taken off the mechanical door and put on a different cover with coils around it. And then when they turned on the oven, they first turned on the coils, and the coils put out the standard field and prevented the microwaves from going through that field into the, into the room beyond. What so the freak? What? You know, they say, I've heard this through the years, that standing in front of a microwave oven while it's in operation is actually not good for you. I used to hear that as a kid. Why? And I mean, it would make sense, right? I mean, we have microwaves all over, but have you ever wondered where the technology of a microwave came from? The fact that you can put your food in, in something and heat it up in a matter of minutes? Have you ever just really thought about that? Mm, that's uh, pretty nuts. Avery would turn it on and then turn it off, and you didn't have to fiddle with the door, you see. In the back was the latrine, just like in an RV. In the left, they had, they had the seats where you would eat, but also they had hammocks where the children would sleep. And then they had the overhead compartments and some, a few storage things in the back, although not a great many of them. And, and then on the bulkhead in the front, they had a mirror and a makeup table where the teacher would put on her stuff. And it was all pretty uh, ordinary. That was the RV model. I wanted to have been called the mechanic, but I guess the name was taken, and the, so you had to pick a different name, you know. A group of intelligent people evolved. They had no interest in dealing with the less intelligent animals and usually just killed them all off. Um, the teacher was there and with the guards, and the children were playing on the steps of the control tower. And I walked over close to her, 10 feet or so, and, I, and, and on that night she was willing to answer a few questions. And I asked what she thought of humans and the planet Earth. I asked her how it compared with other, other inhabited planets that they had seen. And she said that they considered the Earth to be a cold, desolate wilderness. On the other hand, she said the thing that they found unique about humans is our willingness to do things with animals. Her, exact, ex, her example was that I grew up on a farm in Wisconsin. I feel very comfortable milking cows, riding horses, um, making you know pets with dogs. Yet each of those animals could kill me if they wanted to. 
I don't think of it that way because instead, like all humans, I first try to decide how the animal is thinking and then I approach the animal accordingly. So I calm down the horse by speaking to it nicely and approaching it from the front. I put the cow in a stanchion and calm it down and begin milking. I make friends with the dog by feeding it and patting it on its head. She said that they considered that they considered that to be very unusual. She said that on most inhabited planets, once the intelligent, uh, a group of intelligent people evolved, they had no interest in dealing with the less intelligent animals and usually just killed them all off. You know, that they had no intent that, 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 that she pointed out that I felt comfortable with pets, pets of cows, pets, making pets of dogs, making pets of, you know, she referred to the time a few days earlier that I'd been down playing with some of the dogs that really weren't my dogs, but from people that lived in the housing area, feeding them and teach them to roll over and sit up. She said, usually the intelligent people just, you know, don't care what the dog thinks, just shoots them, you know? <laughs> and they found uh, humans to be very unusual in that regard. And the way she described it is because we were willing, even though we were intelligent, we were, we were willing to try to think like less intelligent animals. Okay. Um, they always came armed. Now, the children weren't armed, and the adults that were very old typically weren't armed. But the young adults and the regular and the older the adults that weren't that weren't too fragile, they always came armed. Their weapons, <coughs> uh, their weapons typically appeared to be um, white, look like white pencils with a certain squarish cross section. The young adults typically carried weapons that were perhaps six inches long. The older adults typically carried weapons that were longer, presumably with greater power. The weapon worked like a microwave laser. Um, the, the, the weapon could, could be adjusted for frequencies appropriate for different elements. If they adjusted it for the frequency of sodium, for example, in the human nerves there are sodium atoms and calcium atoms. And, 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 and if they adjusted it for sodium and fired it at you, it would make it seem like you were getting a, an electric shock like, you know, depending on the power of the weapon, it would feel like you just touched a high voltage wire of 100,000 volts and was extremely painful. If they set it high enough, they could kill you by just going zappo and you'd be electrocuted. <clears throat> if they had it set low, then it would just give a tingling affair. And you'd, you know, <clears throat> They never actually used the sodium setting on me, but I did meet, for example, a CIA guard who said that one day he had been walking with the teacher coming down the, cap the steps of the Capitol building. And because their bone structure is slightly different than ours, he wasn't familiar with the way they look when they're walking down steps. And he said they were partway down, and it looked to him like the teacher was going to fall. And so without thinking, he reached out and grabbed her by the elbow to steady her. And he said... She almost killed him. She jerked the weapon, set it to the sodium setting, 
and had him down on his knees saying, you think we're fools, you think we're idiots, you think I'd come here if I couldn't take care of myself? And she said, you know, it, it was all he could do to breathe when she used that weapon on him, and he was absolutely terrified of her, you know. She put him, she put him through five or ten minutes of, you know, who's given the orders and who's taken them, you, you know, and, and it was nothing but yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. And, <laughs> and um, they never did that to me, although I, in addition to the guard, I met a number of guys they had done that to. Um, another set, if they moved it to the calcium setting, then it was like putting you to sleep or calming you down. Um, so like <clears throat> if you were standing there and they did it to you, you might not be able to move your feet, but you wouldn't actually feel terrified. They, they didn't use the calcium setting very often. One of the weapons they could set to hypnotize a person. When they used that setting, they liked, uh, typically liked a clean shot at one of your temples. And what it would do is induce uh, uh, the same as if you were hypnotized. It, it, they could turn it on instantaneously and turn it off instantaneously. And, and it was common to have missing time experiences. One day I was walking from my theodolite stand to the weather shack. Uh, it happened a large number of times, but on this day in particular. And, and it was like 19 or 20 steps from the theodolite stand to my weather shack. And I, can clearly I could clearly remember taking step 12. And I could clearly remember finishing step 14. But in between those two steps, almost 20 minutes went by. Uh, you know, I, I, it used to annoy me greatly until I'd finally gotten to where I could break through that hypnotism by relaxing and letting your mind wander. And, and what had happened was, it was one of the early days in 65, Range 4 Harry had brought some new arrivals around, and he had stepped out from the, the alleyway between my weather shack and the supply shed, and had a clean shot at my right temple and hypnotized me as I was taking step 13. And then while I stood there, he'd brought out the new arrivals and said, this is Charlie. See, he's got teeth. Open your mouth, Charlie. Just like you do when you're hypnotized. And said he eats more times than we do. And, you know, giving him the tour. This is what a human is. And then when they all went back in, then he's, you know, really, it took him about 20 minutes to go through his introducing them to a human routine and, and released it and then went on, you know. Because because of a number of episodes like that, I used to have a policy of writing the time down when I did things. So I used to have a policy of writing down the time, and before I started walking back to my weather shack, of writing down on my on my weather on my weather um, report, you know, when I left the theodolite stand, and then writing down on my weather report when I got to my weather shack. And, of course, it should only be like a minute or two, you see, you know, and just to see if they had done that to me and I didn't remember it because they could do it so quickly. I'll say one more thing about the weapons. They had another setting that I know about, the iodine setting. And if they fired you, if they hit you with the iodine setting, especially in the thyroid area, it would alter, it would, it would affect the iodine in your blood and it would alter the chemistry of the blood so that your blood would seep through the arteries and you'd bleed to death in like two minutes. Um, <clears throat> now, nothing I did was ever, uh, 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 nothing I did was ever classified. 
the, nobody ever gave me a briefing before I went out there. Nobody ever gave me a briefing when I came back. My order said that uh, nothing I did was ever classified. I was never part of a project. We were never building like airplanes or missiles. So therefore, I was never shown any classified drawings or anything like that. Everything I know I had to figure out for myself. Uh, there's a good reason for that. Um, the aliens don't handle anger the way humans do. When they become angry, you know, they either go away or they kill you. Or, you know, it's there's uh, humans, you know, we get angry with each other and we fight and then we become good friends. The aliens, at least where humans are concerned, or at least my experiences, aren't like that. They're either pleasant or you're in trouble. Um, the um, if I didn't bring anything off the ranges. I didn't bring any photographs, any documents, any material. I came off only with my memories. There was nothing to debrief me on. The, the alien mothers, remember, are very proud of their ability to raise their children. If anything I did was classified, that would mean, for example, that after the teacher brought her daughter and her, two play, and the, and her daughter's playmates around to simply play, then I would have had to have been called in and be debriefed by, uh, by CIA guards. That would have upset the teacher beyond limit to have two ordinary human guards call me in and start asking questions. How does the teacher take care of her children? Do you think she's doing a good job? Do you think? I mean, you and 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 you wouldn't have had to tell her the next time I went out there, using their communication equipment. She would have just said, "You see," she would just figure it right out. Or the next time the generals showed up, she would have just figured it right out. Well, remember the experience of that CIA guard on the steps of the uh, that he related to me on the steps of the Capitol building. The idea of upsetting the teacher, I mean, she was perfectly willing to just jerk the weapon and say, who's given the orders? I thought we had an agreement, you know. The, the committee had agreed, which included the teacher, Range 4 Harry, some of the other tall whites, as well as the American generals. They had agreed that nothing I did would ever be classified, and the tall whites expect their agreements to be carried out, just like Philadelphia lawyers, to the letter. They go through a lot of trouble. They, they are very conscious of their agreements, and they keep them to the letter. And they expect the same from humans. Forty years isn't much time for the tall whites, since they live so much longer than we do. If, if, if anything I did was classified, they agreed that nothing I did would ever be classified. They meant that period, you know, and they meant the American generals to keep that period, you know. And after all, I don't have any drawings or pictures. I didn't, you know, the log books that were out there, I left out there. I, and so um, there were, you know, usually classification refers to material things, you know, drawings, material, whatever. When I was out there, I never, I never observed the aliens to do anything um, magical. They were very good at building craft that traveled faster than the speed of light. They did not travel in time. I never observed them traveling to another dimension. I never saw, I mean, they're not angels, they're just creatures like us. That I'm very religious, I'm Roman Catholic that angels are angels and aliens are aliens. They, they did not, they, they, um, they did not um, 
come to teach me anything. They came for their purposes. They didn't, um, currently it seems to me that um, American physics is kind of in the reverse Galileo position. In the time of Galileo, religious leaders required that scientists think inside the box, and scientists like Galileo wanted to experiment and think outside the box. Now, however, the situation appears to be reversed. American physicists seem to think that Einstein was always and forever perfect and complete, and so American scientists keep thinking inside the box. In Hall photon theory, my belief is that inside the photon, there is a third field, which, but the, currently the box says there's only two fields. Most scientists won't consider it. They're insisting on thinking inside the box for religious reasons, pretending it's science, you see. As I describe in the appendix of book three, I show in a scientific manner how scientists should be approaching that. Currently, it's the religious leaders who are willing to consider uh, guys like Monsignor um, Balducci, I believe, and so on, who are willing to think outside the box and say, of course, there can be intelligent life on other planets. One of the biggest shocks that I had to overcome in 1965 and 66 was once I realized that they were real, they were here, and that Einstein was wrong, and that God created life on many, similar to us, on a whole bunch of different planets. It was the shock of realizing that so many people had been so wrong for so long, you know? I mean, once you saw their craft come in, defeated, floating on the gravity field in perfect silence and landing, it was the shock of saying, it, it was the shock of saying, how could so many American scientists not have discovered that or not even be trying to discover it, not even be thinking about that? And likewise, from a religious point of view, it seems I'm the teacher herself, one time on a different night when I went over there and I was talking to her, and she was willing to answer a few questions. Um, um, she, she, she was teasing me because they have a dry sense of humor and they liked to outthink me and they could do so very quickly or very easily. And she said, and, 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 I, and I was saying, uh, um, uh, she, she, she was making a long story short, she was pointing up to the stars in the sky and she said, you can see all the stars in the sky surely you didn't think you were alone. And at the time I had, you know, <laughs> and then they're all laughing, you know, you know, surely you didn't think that whatever life was on the earth wouldn't be repeated on the other stars, you know, and I had, and then they were all laughing, boy, is he silly, you know, and it just seems so obvious to me when you go out at night and you look up at the stars, of the sky, that however life, whatever God did to make life here on earth, he must have done it again because there are so many stars in the universe and it's so vast. And, and, uh, and, and religious leaders are willing to think outside the box. Uh, uh, whereas now when I go and I talk to, sci to, to the scientists and stuff, they all start with this box called Einstein. Einstein himself never claimed to be perfect and complete, but all of his followers seemed to claim that he was perfect and complete. And I think that's one of the one of my observations is is um, is that that box they're in. Well, rem remember when the teacher said that on other planets the intelligent beings typically killed off the animals. She was referring to other planets they had seen with being with intelligent life on them. 
But she didn't elaborate. And the reason is because when they came, they came for their purposes. They didn't come to say, let me tell Charlie everything there is to know about the universe. They didn't care. If they didn't have anything to say, some nights they might just come, not say anything. The kids might play and they might leave, you know, especially the men. If they didn't have, if there was no reason for them to actually come and talk, to actually talk when they were close, it, it, like, like that night when there were the three electrical engineers there. They wanted to see me start up the electrical generator because that's the same kind of power source the U.S. Air Force had given them for use up on their hangar because it was built by the Air Force. And they wanted to see how I used it as part of their training program, see? Well, from, from their point of view, there's no reason to talk to me about it. They just want to see me do it. So they came and just stood there and watched. And then, you know, eventually Charlie's bright enough to figure out that I should just carry on with my duties. And, and you know, and, and they would just stand and watch. And then, um, you know, if there had been a reason for them to say, what does this do? Then they would have said, what does that do? But they, they, didn't, they didn't come and say, oh, let me tell you about this star. Or let me tell you about that star. Um, or, or anything like that. One of the things I had to do is put aside the baggage of Hollywood. We all know how Hollywood thinks things are supposed to go. According to Hollywood, when aliens come, there's supposed to be lights in the sky, and they're supposed to be pretty colored and move fast and have clever formations, and then they're supposed to land over there, and somebody's supposed to come out and do weird things. I really wasn't ready in the 60s for the idea that I would just walk around the corner of one of my of my weather shack and there would be a man standing there the day I did at range one and he wasn't human and he was just standing there looking at me and what he was doing is guarding the play area where the teacher and the children were playing and you hadn't seen the craft, you hadn't seen the scout craft, you hadn't seen him come, you hadn't seen him leave. There was no reason for him to say anything because there's no reason for you to know what he's doing there. He's just guarding the entrance to the, to the, where, the, where the kids and the teacher are playing on that day. And if, if you feel like standing there and looking at him, well, that's fine with him. If you feel like running away, that's fine with him because he's not human. He sees it differently. And, and, and it took me, it, um, you know, he's not human. He sees it differently. And it took me a while. It took me a very long time, several weeks, to get used to the idea that they are the way they that they are that way because they like themselves being that way, and that's different than the way Hollywood would have us think they were. And <clears throat> wow, I mean, one of the things that really pokes out to me is the religious aspect to it because if our government was to ever actually admit that there is a being other than human that has intelligent thinking, advanced thinking that could be potentially smarter than human beings. Okay, obviously, if we knew how to generate our own gravitational field, we would have absolutely did it by now. It would absolutely change the world as we know it today. So um, I really, uh, I want, there's this one part though, the, the way he describes their appearance. 
know. And so it was common every time there was a new moon for, you know, after the new arrivals had rested up, for them to, for the experience, uh, for an experienced guard to bring around a group of new arrivals. The number of new arrivals could be anywhere from two or three to 20, depending on how many were brave enough to come watch Gorilla Charlie in the, in the sagebrush. And, um, and, and so um, and while the spacecraft was being repaired, they also had um, a technology exchange program with the U.S. Air Force. In which, in which those technologies which they were willing to share with the Air Force, they would work on joint projects with the U.S. Air Force. They were only willing but, to share... But if you really think about it for a second, if you were a group of people and you had better technology than any other group of people on this planet, on Earth right now, if you, you got the United States at your beck and call wanting to exchange technology with you because you have the better technology like do you realize what that means the type of leverage that these tall whites could pull <laughs> i mean if they say that they don't want to come out and be exposed to the world the military is not going to do it you know what i mean and they don't have teeth they just have rigid 11 six feet tall yeah but i wanted the appearance is very stark Three to twenty, depending on how many were brave enough to come watch Gorilla Charlie and the U.S. Air Force and say, "Could we buy a new radio?" You see, uh, so it was very so it was obvious. And on the other hand, the Air Force can, and the Army can always use better radios. You see, and so it was common for them. So one area where they were obviously doing technology transfer was in the area of radio communications, so that we could build radios that they could use, and in return, we knew how to build better radios. Uh, uh, some technologies, like the secret to how they're, the, the secret to how, they're, how they traveled faster than light, they were not willing to share. The idea of us having our own spacecraft traveling faster than the speed of light with nuclear weapons on board heading for their home planet they didn't see where that was in their interest. And so so when we when I say they were doing technology transfer with the Air Force, that was a negotiation where both sides mutually agreed that it was in their interest to do so. The tall whites live probably 10 times longer than we do. They live almost 700 years. And, uh, and their spacecraft clearly travel faster than the speed of light. They look, they're humanoid. Their skin is as white as a piece of paper. Throughout much of their adult life, they're the same height that I am, 5'11", 6 feet tall. <clears throat> they, have, um, they have large eyes. Their eyes are perhaps twice as large as ours. They're typically blue, and then as they, blue, blue eyes with white pupils. Um, although when they when they get older, especially the men, their eyes take on a pink shade. Their eyes stretch further around the sides of their head than human eyes do, and 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 their their ears and their nose noses are only about half the size of human ears and noses, and their ears lay back along the side of their head more than a human does. They have, their lips are not as prominent as humans, and they don't have teeth. They just have ridges 
because they're plant eaters. They don't eat meat. They have much less hair than we do. They don't have any hair on their arms, and on their and the men don't have beards. On their head, they have the hair is only, they have only about half as much hair as humans, and their hair is so thin and transparent that they appear to be platinum blonde. Okay, uh, uh, sometimes when they keep their hair cut short, sometimes they don't appear to have hair because it's so thin. They, uh, they, they, um, they're, they're, they're much frail. They're, they're built. Their, their body structure is more frail than ours. The um, alien whose CIA name was Range Four Harry, for example, one time I saw him walking in the soft dirt over on the southwest side of the Range Three Lounge, and after he had left, I went over and me measured the depths of the footprints he left. And from those, I estimated that he only weighed between 90 and 110 pounds, even though he was the same height as I am. Their arms, their bones are only about half as big as ours. Their thumbs are only about half as long, but their fingers are longer in proportion to their hand than ours, and they're way more flexible. It me, it, but it also means that they're not built for heavy lifting. We're built like gorillas compared to them, you see. Um, they have men, women, and children. And if the men and women are standing side by side and not walking or moving, it's frequently not possible to tell which one is the man and which one is the woman, especially for the young adults. Uh, when they get older, then, then there are obvious differences, but in the facial structure and the bones and stuff. But especially for the young adults, it's entirely possible for two of them to be standing side by side. And if they're not moving, to be not sure if you're talking to men or women. Once they start moving, though, then it's very obvious which ones are the men and which ones are the women. Because the men are more like human men. When they walk, they kind of go pound, pound, pound. Whereas the women are, are much lighter on their feet and much, um, much more animated. The, the women are much more like human women, much more willing to talk than the men. It wouldn't be at all unusual for, say, four, four young men to come around and not have any reason to say anything and not say anything, to just come around, and, to just come and not say hello, not say goodbye, not say anything in between and just stand and look at you. Whereas the women, if they came, usually the women would say something like, uh, typically, uh, is it okay if my if the children play while you release the balloon, or or usually if you ask the women something, they would have some questions, um, or some or 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 at least some conversation, but they never came just the tall whites never came just to talk with me. The, if they were talking with me, there was it was always as part of the reason they came. Uh, the um, the, the women were very proud of the fact that they loved their children. The men were too, but the women were immensely proud of it. If a tall white lady came and she had children with her, a very common way for her to start the conversation would be for her to ask me using English, which she had learned, do I understand that they love their children more than human women love their children? 
Or in other words, I want to make sure my children are safe, you see. And of course, when I said, yes, I understand that, then they would re noticeably relax and feel happier. If a tall white lady came with children and she didn't say anything, a common way for me to start the conversation would be for me to say, I understand that you love your children more than human women love their children, and then she'd relax and feel and feel better. In many ways, the tall white women were like female gorillas. You could consider the children to be untouchable, okay? If you touch the children, the mother might kill you, no matter how pleasant she seemed no matter how close the child came. So, for example, and I speak from direct experience, if I was standing by my theodolite and the child wanted to look through the theodolite and the child was right there, then there's no way in the world that it, it, it would be suicide for me to reach over and touch the child. That will upset the mother. You, you know, um, <clears throat> the, the um, uh, uh, and for example, on one evening, um, this tall white lady came who um, I had seen a few times before, but sh uh, she wasn't a regular, and she brought three children with her. And she was somewhat older than the typical young adult and therefore somewhat taller. She was 6'1", 6'2". And, and following the usual so-called protocol, she had come down the a bunker road with her three children in an obvious manner to let me get used to the idea that she was coming with her kids. And then when she got to the end of the bunker road where the range boards were, she began approaching come approaching me directly. I was halfway across the square. The, and as she got closer, oh, perhaps 20 feet, 15 feet, uh, um, even though I wasn't, I'd gotten over my fear of the tall whites, uh, you know, because you had to treat treat each one as an individual, I found her, I found it a little intimidating that she was coming that close, and so I backed away from my theodolite towards the generator shack, and she said, "Is it okay if the children look in my weather shack while I took my report?" And I said yes, and so I backed away to the generator shack and stood with my back to the wall of the generator shack and left her standing just to the northeast of my theodolite and, you know, said, take all the time you want. And so then the three children went into my weather shack, like kids do, and they didn't touch anything or move anything, but they were just looking around out of curiosity. As I and, and at the time, as she stood there, she was looking at her children who were in the shack. Now, I'm not sure they were all her children. Uh, usually, when the oh, tall white lady came with three children, the typical contingent, one would be hers and two would be the children of someone else. Typically, she'd be babysitting two kids and bringing one of her own. And, and so she was watching the children. I became concerned because I had a can of Coca-Cola, which was in a metal can, sitting on one of the shelves. Now, the tall whites wore suits when they came at night that put out a zone of fluorescent light and radioactive particles. The suits protected them from things, like if you threw a rock at them, the rock wouldn't hit them. It would get to that zone and fall to the ground. It also allowed them to levitate, especially the children. But they had to balance themselves when they did so. So the children might use the suits to levitate. The adults usually didn't levitate very much, nine inches or so, but it worked like an elevator, as I'll describe later. 
And I became concerned that since the children had their suits on, usually the kids turned off the power to their suits when they went in my shack. And I became afraid that they would get next to that can of Coca-Cola and might be in some danger, in which case I might be blamed, you know. It would have been, you know, it would have been suicide for me to go over to my weather shack and speak to the children. You know, the mother might well have killed me if I'd done that. There's no way in the world you could go over there and say, children, don't do this, children, don't do that. You, you're just taking your life in your hands to try that. You have to talk to the mother, you know, and that, that's how the tall whites are. And, and on the other hand, she wasn't looking at me at the time. And so what I did is I took uh, two steps forward and stopped and stood there with my hands at my side and my feet, you know, not moving, and waited for her to see me. And, of course, when I took two steps forward and stopped, then she looked over where I was immediately. And then when I had her attention, I said, I'm worried about the safety of the children. I have a can of soda pop, of Coca-Cola there in that can, and I'm worried that the children might be in some danger if they get too close to it. And the mother said, I'll handle it. And then the mother obviously communicated with the children, and the children were very well behaved, and they stayed away from my can of soda pop. The children never disobeyed their parents that I ever saw, and the parents would do anything for their children. So when they traveled in family groups, they were very tightly knit. When the women came around, they never came around alone. None of the tall whites ever came around alone. They always came around in groups, and the adults were always well-armed. But it was common for the women to be very proud of their family relationships. The men were too, but it was just more common for the women to, to, to describe it. So it would be it was very common, say, like for a, for if you, if a group of them came around, for the lady to say um, things like the guard on the tower is my mother's brother's son. You know, you know the you know the and and just identify who the you know all their friends were, uh, if they were who they were related to and who they weren't related to, and um, and and um, the, far more so than what humans would do. Uh, the, when they so they they did more than just travel in family groups. They appeared to maintain very tightly knit family relationships. The the the, the tall whites um, live a, approximately ten times longer than humans live. They um, and and they don't age the way we do. When they get throughout most of their adult life, as as I said, they're about our height, six, five, ten, five, eleven, six feet. But then, when they get equivalent in age to a human who's perhaps thirty-nine or forty years old, and for them that's perhaps four hundred years old, then they start growing again. And 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 as instead of getting instead of aging the way we do, as they grow older they go through several more growth periods. This is not necessarily good for them because only their bones and muscles grow. Their internal organs don't grow in proportion. Pretty soon they get very tall, eight, eight and a half feet tall, but their organs aren't able to support their body. So as they get taller, they become more fragile. Eventually after six or 700 years or in there somewhere, there comes a growth phase where they begin growing again and their organs can't support it, in which case they die. 
Usually, usually by the time they get to be eight feet tall, they're fragile. And usually aliens that tall are accompanied by younger adults to study them. Um, living longer does have some drawbacks. For one thing, their bodies do not heal as quickly as ours. If they break a leg and they're very fragile, so they break easy, it may take them, it may take their bones five earth years to re, to heal. Whereas, as you know, a young person, when I was young, if I broke a leg, could heal up in, I don't know, a few weeks or so. I'm not a medical doctor, but would heal up much faster. Cuts and scratches, for example, on, uh, when, on, when I was young one time, for example, and I was out on the ranges, one day I scratched myself in a very ordinary fashion in the morning. By the afternoon, it had already healed up nicely, and by the next day, I'd almost forgotten about it. The next day, the a group of tall whites came around with the experienced tall white and some young arrivals, and they were they were very impressed that my body had already healed. For them, that would have taken several weeks to to have healed up like that. Um, also, when, although they're considered to be more intelligent than we are because their nervous system runs two or three times faster than ours does, it does have some drawbacks. They tend to, when they're doing something, they tend to focus in on it more carefully than a human would. And they're therefore very easy to surprise when they're engaged in something. Uh, um, one time when a, a group of tall whites came around with the usual experienced guard and, and and a group of new new arrivals. It was the morning run, and I was young. I was doing what we all do. I was drinking soda pop. I was eating peanuts. I was talking. I was playing to the music. I was doing my blue. I'd released a balloon, and I was tracking my balloon at the Theatolite, and I was singing some songs and dancing around, too, to some Jagger songs, all kind of at the same time while writing down my numbers. And, and one of the new arrivals asked the experienced guard, are all humans able to do that? Because I was multitasking. For the tall whites wouldn't have done it that way. They would have just eaten and concentrated on eating, or they would have just taken the readings and concentrated on the readings, or, or, or you know, or sang their song and concentrated on singing their song. For, um, for that, uh, um, and so they appreciated as I did, one of the first agreements that I negotiated with them. Uh, we agreed that they wouldn't come up behind me and scare me. They could do so very easily. Um, and I wouldn't come up behind them and scare them. You see, if I saw one of them out in the desert and, he, and it didn't appear that he had seen me, that I wouldn't approach him. I would just stay where I was and sing, sing make a sound or sing one of my songs such as the song by Ricky Nelson, It's Up to You, because I've done everything, you know, and, and until I was sure they had seen me. And then I wouldn't approach him. I would just stay where I was. And if they chose to come closer to me, they could approach me as close as they felt uh, until, uh, until they didn't. There's a lot more where that came from. I will... Um... I'll definitely drop the link. If you guys catch this in the live chat, there'll be a link in the live chat. 
will link you over to this video. Pretty amazing. Amazing. It's the way he talks about it. It's his matter of fact talk, you know. Anyway, <clears throat> not here to sway you either way. You know, not here to sway you either way. You'll think whatever you'll think. I'm out of here, you guys. I'm out of here. Until next time.